I'm Chris Cash. And I'm Archie Brown. And for this episode of the China Research Group's Talks on China podcast, we're delighted to be joined by Ovigwe Egwegu. Ovigwe is a policy analyst at Development Reimagined, a development consultancy based in Beijing. Ovigwe's research and analysis includes African security challenges, China-Africa relations, and Africa's position within a rapidly shifting global order. His work has been featured in the China-Africa Project, Foreign Policy Magazine, and The Diplomat. In June, Ovigwe authored a piece for The Diplomat looking at China's recently announced global security initiative and how it has been received in the global south. And that's what we're going to be discussing on the podcast today. Hi, Ovigwe. Thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. I wanted to start by just asking if you could give a very brief overview of what exactly the global security initiative is for our listeners. Yeah, thanks for having me. I, I think of the GSI as a core component of China's growing role in global governance, particularly in terms regards to security, right? So we saw the BROI launched in 2013, which is more like the economic dimension of China's you know, global uh, outreach. And so far, given several of the big projects under the BRI, of course, there are some issues with the BRI, but largely speaking, I would say the BRI is in place and you only need to look at the analysis around uh, in the Indo-Pacific and so-called string string of pearls and those key infrastructure that allows China to consolidate its uh, economic security or international economic security. So the GSI, from my perspective, fits into that whereby because of the rapidly deteriorating relationship between the US and China and what that means for uh, supply chain security for Beijing, particularly in the Indo-Pacific, what China, of course, realizes is that it has to develop a component that secures its economic interests, right? And it doesn't have to take a very different approach from the BRI because it's about, so you make the big announcement and then you have your diplomat go from country to country as part of a visit, trying to recruit countries into the global security initiative. Very recently, uh, Foreign Minister Wang Yi uh, was in Bangladesh and of course mentioned Global Development Initiative and the Global Security Initiative. So it's it's following that same pattern. And so far, I say a lot of countries are already keen on getting on board. The one major selling point of, of the Global Security Initiative, of course, is you know, China's emphasis on non-interference principle and also, the, uh, and also the principle of indivisible security, which you know, really presents China as a benign you know, uh, rising power. So from that perspective, I think Many small countries, even middle countries, would have no issues signing on board the GSI, but it remains to be seen how Beijing is going to convince countries outside of the global south that the GSI is truly global and includes their interests and it's not a threat to, do, to them. That's all very interesting, Avigwe, and I think we'll come back to the, the GSI's reception in the global south a little bit later in the podcast. but. I want to take a, a sort of step back to begin with and, and place the Global Security Initiative, the, the the GSI, as as you said, within the context of other recent Chinese foreign policy developments, which you you also alluded to. And most listeners will be familiar with the the Belt and Road Initiative, the the BRI, which has has been used to invest in infrastructure projects in other countries and has helped China expand its influence around the world. But back in September last year, Xi Jinping also launched this global development initiative, the GDI, to throw in another acronym. How does this initiative, the GDI, maybe differ to the GSI? And do they mark a, a pivot away from the BRI model in your view? 
No, no, I actually think they are very, very complementary because, for instance, with the BRI, it's very much about infrastructure, large-scale infrastructure connectivity, right? But development is more than infrastructure. You have to dis discuss other aspects of development, like you know, global financial governance, monetary policy, uh, trade tariffs, you know, intellectual property rights. So, so there are many dimensions to development that isn't really captured in the BRI in, in a sense. So the the GDI, I see it as the more encompassing you know, initiative where the infrastructure becomes a component of it. And other issues around global development policy are also discussed within that within uh, that initiative. China's own approach to development, of course, will also take center stage because it has followed a model that is very different from uh, what we've seen for many Western countries that have risen in terms of development and pro prosperity since World War II. So th these are some of the aspects that I see will be coming up with the GDI. One of the things I also like to mention is that China tries to do things very differently, especially when it comes to the practical ideas be behind it. So, for instance, it knows fully well that countries, of course, have seen China's rise and they see China as an example of, a, of countries that have been able to develop from being poor to being very rich. I think it's even a high, high middle-income country right, uh, right now. And, of course, there is that appeal to, to learn from China's experience. So China has that admiration from many developing countries. However, it also does not really need to assert its ideas on the world because it, be it being a case study shows its success, but also realize that countries also have perspectives on what development is going to be or what, how they perceive that development. So China's model might not necessarily work for in other countries, particularly in African countries, or even in South America. That is why even with the announcement of the GDI, GDI in particular, there is no substance to it yet. So nobody knows exactly what it's going to be. And I think the vagueness of it is almost intentional because then Beijing can actually sit and watch what responses are going to be and then ideas you know, can be co-developed. So that co-development, again, allowing countries to be able to contribute their perspective, I think is also something that China sees as a way to draw and lure in more uh, countries rather than it just putting out to say, this is a global development initiative, this is what we want it to be. And, uh, and I think it might be hard, far-fetched to, to think people will just sign up to that kind of approach. Yeah, yeah. It's really interesting to hear you talk about, in particular, this idea of uh, a lack of substance currently with these initiatives. And there's been a lot of discourse around whether these initiatives are going to be something that get fleshed out further down the line or not. And China has a history of these high-end policy concepts that later get fleshed out, the, the BRI kind of being the, the classic example of that. So without asking you to speculate too much, do you think the GSI is an initiative that has teeth as a security concept, or is it simply more of a rhetorical device at this stage? And are there any concrete policies that we've seen to date stemming from the GSI? So with the GSI, I would even put the GSI fired of the GDI in terms of buy-in and teeth, quote-unquote. And this is because if you look at the current global environment, there's a lot of uncertainty Security concerns are really, really high. I think we've not been at this level since the end of, of, of the Cold War. Particularly countries in you know Asia Pacific, which I consider ground zero of great power competition, there there is a lot of concern about what the risks are for strategic miscalculations and landing to war, 
And that is why countries are very skeptical to partake in any security competition, right? These countries, majority of them really don't, they really don't have the position to de-escalate the situation in a sense. So if the big powers decide there's going to be a cold war, there's going to be a cold war. But what I see China is trying to do is even if it knows that the dynamics is heading towards a cold war, right? If it goes out to just start recruiting members, signing security partnerships, it's very likely not going to work because the U.S. alliance system is very vast and the influence is very deep. Whether I'm looking at China's immediate neighborhood in you know, South China Sea or even the wider Asia Pacific. So it makes sense to develop a, an initiative that presents you as a security partner and then you underpin that initiative in a principle that makes you a benign security partner. If you look at the indivisible security principle, for instance, if you apply it to the relationship with Solomon Island, that partnership is not targeting the third country, right? So the security of the partnership is not meant to reduce the security of another country. But that would be very hard to argue when the Chinese warships start docking in Solomon Island or the submarines that are using Solomon Island for resupply and surveillance and, and all of that. Of course, we know that will have practical advantages to China's global military security and interest. So you would not really find any security initiative from Beijing as of yet that clearly speaks to the GSI. But of course, that's one of the most amazing parts of this initiative, because if you look at the, the BRI, when it was launched, many people didn't take it seriously because we want to build infrastructure, infrastructure you know, collaboration and development. But to what end? You know? So but what we saw was an increasingly, it'd be from 15 countries, 30 countries, 40 countries started signing on and on and on. And then after a while, the bilateral or isolated infrastructure development project, years down the line, it seemed like a full picture has, has emerged from how all these independent infrastructure projects started taking shape and formed like the string of pearl. That's the same approach I also anticipate will be used with the global security initiative. So if you look at the Chinese diplomatic uh, engagements now, there is hardly any visit where you do not have the foreign minister of China engaging foreign countries and trying to get them on board the GSI. So they are going to be on board the GSI, but whatever security partnership China is going to have with these countries would not be announced as GSI security partnership. They would not be bilateral security partnerships. But down the line, what you will find out is you will now have series of partnerships that will give you somewhat like a clear picture of what China was trying to achieve with the GSI from the get-go. So it doesn't start big and trying to pitch these things all together. It starts as individual projects, seem small partnership. I mean, Solomon Island seems like a small country. What, what can that really mean? And then tomorrow it's going to be Eritrea. Maybe another time it's going to be maybe Tanzania and like that, like that. Before you know it, you have series of solid partnerships with substance and then people will start asking themselves, how did this happen under our watch? I think that'll be very interesting to observe, as you said, whether it follows the, the same path as the, the BRI and sort of gets fleshed out by individual actors. I just wanted to pick up briefly on a term that you mentioned in the context of the, the Solomon Island situation. You talked about this this concept of indivisible security, which I find really interesting. Could you could you maybe just explain for listeners what you mean by that? Yeah, so the indivisible security principle 
while it was announced during the uh, launch of the GSR, that principle actually originates from Europe. So it's not it's not necessarily a Chinese thinking in, in, in a sense. And it is very relevant to how Russia and the Euro-Atlantic bloc have tried to create stability in, in Europe, whereby in security is viewed as an indivisible uh, commodity. Where you, you cannot increase your security at my expense. I am not going to increase my own security at your expense. So it's just to create an environment that is de facto de-escalatory or at least doesn't drive escalation and uh, arms race and, and militarization. So that and that is why I think the Chinese, looking at how that worked in Europe to a large extent, uh, even the Russians, when the Chinese announced, the Russians were actually happy to echo it. But uh, Sergei of the Russian Foreign Minister, actually spoke in support of, you know, that indivisible you know, security and highlighting how it relates to the Ukraine war and, and all of that. How the breach of it rather, you know, led to the Ukraine war. But that's the Russian perspective. I think the way the Chinese look at indivisible security is. If you have a security regime where countries accept that security partnership that they are going to enter into should not be counter to the national security interests of a third country, that puts China at an advantage, particularly in the South China Sea and, and, and its, its neighborhood, because then the Philippines, for instance, if Philippines adopts the indivisible security uh, uh, principle, how it engages with the United States becomes viewed through that lens of whether that engagement contributes or at least harms the security of China, which is seen as U.S.'s rival uh, in, in the region. And in the same turn, China is going to try to apply that same principle in its own engagement with neighboring countries in the Asia-Pacific region to say we are coming in as a security partner, but not to harm the security of a third country being the United States. But it's very different for China because the United States is not in the neighborhood of the, in the Indo-Pacific, right? It's way out of the region. So if you look at it from that perspective, if you have China and Cambodia, for instance, it would make sense to say, yes, of course, we are having a security partnership. The U.S. is far away. Me having a port for my vessels has nothing to do with the United States because, of course, the United States is not next door to Cambodia, right? But if GSI or that indivisible security principle still allows China to grow its security partnerships in a way that doesn't seem like it is about the United States. But if those countries in the region surrounding China apply this principle in their engagement with the United States, it is going to limit their engagement, security partnerships, or what they can do within their security partnership with the U.S., because when the U.S. comes to say we can't have an arrangement that harms China, China is just next door, right? So that is a very clever uh, approach, and I think it's something that will be very tricky for countries to navigate. I personally think the GSI is more likely to find success in African countries than countries around the you know, Asia-Pacific and Indo-Pacific because, of course, the U.S. is not going to let this type of approach take hold there because it puts it at a huge disadvantage vis-a-vis -vis China. Yeah, that's really interesting. And as Chris said earlier, I think we're really keen to dig into a bit more about the reception of the Global Security Initiative in the Global South. So I'm sure we'll get to that in just a moment. 
But just going back to this, this concept of indivisible security and its deployment in the rhetoric around Russia's invasion of Ukraine and China's discussions of this idea of an Asian NATO with alliances such as AUKUS and Quad forming in the Indo-Pacific, which China sees an effort to contain it. What I wanted to ask is whether you think the indivisible security concept tells us something about the timing of the deployment of the GSI and whether its timing has been accelerated by the kind of deterioration of the security environment that we've seen this year. I know I doubt it's it's going to on its own be effective. Whether the Chinese planned the launch of GSI indivisible security because of the issues with Ukraine, that's anybody's guess. But of course, the war in Ukraine and the, the situation in the Indo-Pacific or rather the Asia-Pacific not only necessitates a regime that is de-escalatory, right, or at least doesn't promote escalation, but at the same time also creates an opportunity. And China seen the opportunity for security regime because of concerns countries have and fears about their national security and regional security. Yes, you as a rising power that's at the center of many of these issues, it is best to put forward a proposal that protects your interests, or at least doesn't hurt your interests, but at the same time would speak to the interests of countries that are less secure or less powerful. Because let's be very clear, a Cold War is only cold for the major powers involved. If we look at the history, if the original Cold War, most of the heat was in third country. And if we consider the Asia Pacific as ground zero today for US-China rivalry and that is rapidly deteriorating to a Cold War, then many countries in the Asia Pacific will be very worried and concerned and they would want any approach to security that prevents further escalation. Currently, the U.S. is not proposing any initiative that prevents escalation. Rather, what the U.S. is doing is forming security blocks. So whether it's Quad with the Japanese, India, and Australia, or it is forming AUKUS with the U.K. that is not a country from the region with Australia, these are blocks, the very clear agenda of containment. And that doesn't contribute to de-escalation because de-escalation by containment would only provoke the target of that containment to either one, form rival blocks or act in, in ways that will undermine the, its opponent's blocks, whether it's Quad or, you know, or AUKUS. But what the Chinese have done is rather than form rival blocks or whether, I mean, we could argue if it has the diplomatic and political uh, influence of form rival blocks, but rather than form rival blocks, what China is then doing is saying, look, we will think a smarter approach that benefits everyone's security is this proposal of, of GSI, rooted in indivisible security. And believe it or not, that is likely to appeal to several countries because I think to a large extent, it's even going to reduce or limit China's own security engagement, but it would, re it would limit the U.S.'s security engagement far more. So that is, uh, that is why I think the, the brilliance in what the Chinese are doing is it's something that speaks to everyone. It's not trying to form blocks you know, to compete but saying, you know, I think the best thing to do is for everyone's security interest to be taken into account. But at the same time, we know that approach also limits its, uh, its rival's ability to, to contain its rise.
Yeah, I think with schemes like AUKUS, we've been fixated on um, what the reaction in Beijing has been and whether it's sort of weakened China's hands and, and not thought about the overall security context. Um, so, so that's really important. We're, we're running out of time, um, Ovigwe, so I just wanted to finish up with a, a couple of questions. The, the first one is around, it seems an obvious thing to say, but the primary audience for these in, initiatives uh, appears to be sort of the global south rather than necessarily Western Europe or North America. Um, so I, I was keen to know how the, the GSI has been received across the global south from what you've seen. Um, and then finally, I was wondering if there are any sort of key lessons that the UK and its partners could learn from China, perhaps for engaging more constructively um, with, with other countries from a security perspective. So recently, there was the China-Africa Peace and Security Forum. It was held virtually, of course. The Chinese uh, defense minister was the chair and, and host, and nearly 50 ministers of defense were in attendance, right? This is the second edition. The first happened, I think it was early 2019. So there's clear recognition in Africa as a region that China is a growing security actor. And one of the issues African countries usually have with major powers in the world is they do not prioritize the creation of platforms where African countries actually contribute. So, for instance, the Chinese, of course, have a strategy towards Africa, but there's a forum on China-Africa cooperation, which is created for both sides to actually engage with each other rather than China just dumping a strategy on the continent. Like you see, for instance, now the U.S. Uh, Secretary of State visited South Africa and launched the U.S. African strategy. Where is the consultation with Africa with African countries? There's no forum where you have that kind of engagement, right? And that is a lesson, I think, or might not be a lesson because I think these countries are very experienced. They know what they're doing. Uh, it's all about priorities, right? So when you have this type of attendance, like I said, almost 50 countries participating in China-Africa Peace and Security you know, Forum, and the GSI was mentioned in that particular forum, leaders, of course, are exposed to the idea, and they will go back, study it, and with uh, Chinese foreign minister also pushing it with his counterparts from the diplomatic and ambassadorial uh, angle, when the leader of a country is asked the question, sir, should we join the GSI? He has his foreign minister saying, yes, I'm aware of this initiative. We've engaged with the Chinese. This is XYZ was discussed. Good. And then he turns to his, to his defense minister and says, what do you think about the GSI? And he says, yes, sure. I've participated in China-Africa Peace and Security Forum. We've discussed the GSI. This is what the Chinese have to say. And this is what, what I think. So there will be familiarity. If you're a leader, an African leader, for instance, of course, looking at also looking at the trade relations with China, the economic relations with China, investment infrastructure, and that platform for co-creation and co-development of these, these initiatives. So when you have both the uh, defense minister and the foreign minister well aware and acquainted with the GSI, the question the leader of any country will probably be asking is why not join? as opposed to why join, because that close contact, the familiarity and the, the, the deep engagement, and also a forum where you can shape the direction of the GSI, gives a lot of confidence. So that is one of the things that I think the GSI has going for it because of China's approach to engaging you know, with its partners. With regard to the last question on how the UK and its partners 
can respond to the GSI. I think it needs to be emphasized that if you want to know how something works, be part of it, right? Study it or, or at least be part of it. But since it's very unlikely that the United Kingdom is going to join the GSI, I, I think we could say at least then study it uh, rather than uh, speculate about it. But I don't think it's an initiative should be for the for one part of the world, but unfortunately, that is how it's going to develop because of when a period of very heightened tensions, you know. So, what that means is the global south would then have a global development initiative that is driven by China and countries who will be part of it, and then you have a global security initiative. Again, with the same dynamics of China-led with partners, and then the BRI. That puts the so-called global north at a disadvantage in terms of global governance, because you now have a rival, China, who are supposed to set up to create blocks, is creating global initiatives, and it is the Western countries that are choosing not to join. It's not as if they were not invited in the first place. So that is another thing that needs to be considered because when global initiatives are launched by one partner and that partner can sign on over 100 countries, then that becomes the de facto global initiative. Whatever initiative that is launched by the West, if they cannot get that same number of participants or parties, then they are the ones that are, that are actually isolated. You know, So um, that is why I think the global in GSI and the GDI is, I think it's a very brilliant way to go about because with another name, like maybe the Shanghai Corporation, countries outside of maybe Central Asia might not key into it. But when you make it global and you have the economic relations to, you know, to support your diplomatic effort, most countries are going to sign on to it. Then it's the few countries who don't sign on to it. They will become the outliers as opposed to China that many people in the world expect to be the outlier and the isolated one. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point. Although it seems obvious on the surface that the global in this initiative is important, I think how China has framed it away from being a China-led initiative and more of this, this global endeavor is really important to its effectiveness. And here at the CRD, we got some work in the pipeline looking at uh, the Global Security Initiative from the UK perspective and how we can better engage uh, globally. So that's been really helpful for us to hear more about it. A big way, it'd be great if you could just let our listeners know um, where it's best for them to follow your work and any upcoming projects that you might be working on. Yeah, sure. I'm active on Twitter, active on LinkedIn with my name, so at Ovigwe Iguegu on both platforms. Also, you can see a lot of uh, the work I do on the DRO website at developmentreimagine.com and also at developmentreimagine on Twitter as well. So lots of lots of the work I write, so appearances I make are always posted on these channels. Great. And thank you so much for joining us on the Talks in China podcast. My pleasure. <laughs>